Good morning. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 11. I was just uh, admiring the, the way that the upstairs is set up and thinking, maybe we should try that, guys, uh, sometime. I thought, I just don't think it would work. Donuts being on nice plates all by themselves and <laughs> coffee on tablecloths, I'm not sure that would work, but nevertheless, we hope you ladies enjoy <laughs> uh, this uh, afternoon. Now, let me just say a word to you men who have not signed up for the men's conference. Raise your hand. No, don't do that. <laughs> just kidding. Someone once said we could use a little pastorly guilt if uh, necessary. Uh, so you can do that today. Uh, as soon as you leave so at the end of the service, uh, you can speak to Ryan in the back or wherever Ryan is at, and you could sign up or sign up online, and, and that'll be taken care of. And when we talk about the men conference, you'll be like, I'm looking forward to that because I am ready. I have signed up. Uh, so be sure to take care of that uh, today quickly uh, to make sure you have your <clears throat> your place. Um, I also want to just encourage you as a church, uh, encourage us as a church, actually call us as a church to uh, to be praying for the men's conference. It'll be here before you know it, a little less than a month away. And I don't want us to presume upon God that he will work. Uh, through our endeavors without seeking his will and without his, seeking his help and his blessing. So I want to just uh, call us all to be praying for this, uh, this event or keep praying if you have been praying uh, as we move towards this conference. Let me just give you three ways that may be helpful. You can write this down or maybe keep them in the back of your mind. Uh, one, I want you to pray for the speaker. Pray for HB, who will be coming out of Jacksonville. He's a pastor in Jacksonville, Florida. Be praying for him, that God will give him strength and insight as he makes preparation. is isn't just us being prepared. We want God to prepare the man who's coming to minister to us. Paul tells the Ephesians, he asks them to pray that words would be given to him in opening his mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. It's a good, good prayer to be praying for HB as he makes those preparations. And secondly, I want to want you to pray for the men who are coming. Do we know who they are? Some of them, yeah. There's a list somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, but God knows them, most importantly. And we want to be praying, uh, faithfully lifting them up, praying that God would, through his knowledge of them, meet uh, their need, whatever it may be, whether it's repentance or restoration, renewal, encouragement, strength, and it's not a small thing to imagine, church, that God can do amazing thing through just a week in a way in his word with his people. Uh, and I want us to think that even through this weekend, God would change the lives of families and congregations through this time, and even our congregation as well. But not only I want you to be praying for the men in that way, but I want you to be praying for the lost. We should never assume, just because it's a men's conference, a Christian conference, that all the men that come out there will know who Jesus is and have a faith in Christ. And so I want you to pray as Christ is lifted up that he will, uh, he will draw those who don't know him to faith in him, that they would be born again throughout this weekend uh, of, and this time in the word. So just be praying for that. Let me just encourage you. Paul again says to us, now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Amen. So we believe that, and we're going, to, we're going to be praying and asking God to work out his will in our lives. So join me in that over this next month. 
Now, if you have your Bible open in front of you, uh, the book of Hebrews chapter number 11, I want to begin reading in verse number 8 this morning. And we are going through a study on the book of Hebrews. And we are out of chapter number 10. It's felt like we were there for a little while. Uh, beginning in verse number 8. I want to read down through verse number um, 16. The Bible says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, and he went out not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder in Christ alone. I love the, just, the, the, just the, the glorious truth that it is in him alone that we have hope. And Lord, we thank you that you give us your only begotten Son. Thank you that you've given us your word. We pray that you'd speak to us through it this morning as we look at the life of Abraham. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Well, when you look through Roman or Hebrews chapter number 11, you tend to wonder how much can you cover, and sometimes you think you can cover more, and sometimes you cover less. How do you divide it up? Abraham stands out as a significant figure, so I want to look at these verses dealing with him this morning uh, together in our time. He lived roughly 4,000 years ago, give or take a century or two, depending on who you read after. The biographical sketch of Abraham is uh, very limited. It begins uh, in Genesis chapter number 12 and ends in Genesis chapter 25, verses 7 and 8, that that really convey the end of his life when it says that 175 years is the extent of his years and Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. A man full of years and was gathered to his people. Abram, that is his name that he had before God changed it, uh, is introduced to us at age 75. By this point he is married, he has no children, he is living with his father and they are uh, they're from the city of Ur, yeah. uh, descendant from Shem, if that's important to you, just to kind of trace the line down of Abraham and who he is. 
uh, Ur, the city which Abraham was found or called out of, um, is, um, is, well, how do you say that? Archaeological studies have unearthed a lot of interesting facts about that that you can find. One, they come to understand it was a very civilized city. Uh, it not only was civilized with reading and a library and all the other things that come along with that. And, you know, 4,000 years ago, we think of men with rocks and, and barbarians, don't we, if we're honest. Um, but here you see this was a very civilized place that he came out of and a very religious place. One of the, one of the places that has been unearthed is a ziggurat. Uh, you can spell that uh, just for your own fun later on. Uh, but it was, a, it was a temple. And you think of the Tower of uh, Babel, and they were building the structure to reach heaven. Some think that was the same thing. It, it was like a pyramid, and it would reach the sky somewhere around 70 feet um, uh, in the air. And at the top of it would be an altar, and they would sacrifice to whatever god that they served or whatever god it was uh, erected for. At the top of this one, they worshiped the moon god Nainer. Uh, some of the royal tombs remind us that the religious practice was not just the offering of sacrifices of animals, but it was an involved human sacrifices and all the, uh, the grotesque brutality that went along with that. Joshua gives us a small account of Abraham as, as God calling him out of this place uh, and insight as he refers back to uh, God's leading the children and, and establishing the nation of the children of Israel. Joshua 24 in his sermon to the nation, verses 2 and 3, he says, God called them out of uh, Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor. And, and it was there that they served other gods. Put it bluntly, Abraham and his father and his father's father, they were all what we would consider theologically pagans. They worshiped other gods. Gods. Then I took your father Abraham, he tells us, from beyond the river and led him uh, through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring as many, and I gave him Isaac. And Joshua gives us that record. We don't know how God called Abraham. We don't know how he spoke to him and what manner. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just simply begins, kind of a, uh, an automatic start. You want some more detail, but God does not give us that detail. Stephen reminds us that uh, the glory of God appeared to our father Abraham in his sermon in Acts to the Sanhedrin. Uh, and it was while he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So it was in this place of Ur, in this pagan city with this pagan worship and this, this kind of Mecca of civilization at that time. It was somewhere south Iraq near what would soon to be or later on become Babylon. It was in this place that God calls him out and and really does some amazing things as we come to understand our bible abraham's call is obedience the promise that god gave to abraham all set him apart as a prominent figure is not to be passed over and the fact that he is seen as the father of israel gives him a special place especially uh, especially to the readers of hebrews or to who the letter was written to would have been a jewish uh, congregation to draw back to Abraham was only a natural thing to do for the writer. In fact, what you find in Jesus' day is their relationship to Abraham was the confidence of their right standing before God. Jesus dealt with that in his time, saying that 
uh, that no, <laughs> you're of the father, you're, dev, uh, you're of your father, the devil, not Abraham. And so trying to correct some of that idea. So there is that close connection and Abraham being that prominent figure. And the Old Testament mentions Abraham 40 times beyond the narrative of, of his life being mentioned in Genesis. And in the New Testament, we see him mentioned some 70 times as being drawn on illustrations and teaching. And Paul famously mentions Abraham and sets him as a standard of justification by faith alone. Romans chapter 4, Galatians 3. And it's worth noting that in those sections, as Paul's arguing that we are made right before God, with God, through faith and faith only. He's drawing Genesis 15, 6 as that statement that is uh, being brought out or exegeted for Paul. At this point in Abraham's life, he had no children of his own. He was about to make his his servant, his heir to the promises of God. And, and so he's in this kind of limbo. What, what about the promises? And God takes him out and says, look at the stars of the heaven. This will be your offspring that will come from you, not your servant. The Bible says in response to that, Genesis fifteen six, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Imagine here a 70-some-year-old man going out, God saying, I will give this to all of you. His wife is barren. They have no children. He looks up to the stars of the heaven and he says, I believe it. That's what he's saying there. And God says that he counted it to Abraham as righteous. Again, Paul alluding in, or Paul demonstrating in uh, Galatians that Abraham um, and those who believe in God and believe the gospel are the true offspring of Abraham sharing in this blessing and promise and relationship to God. James also uses Abraham as an example of active faith. The same way our Hebrew writer does here, uh, which is seen obedient faith or faith in obedience, faith that is displayed what it looks like. And really that's what chapter 11 is about, isn't it? He's trying to bring our minds out of abstract ideas and definitions out of what some of us might think mathematical problems, which we enjoy. You know, you kind of work them out. This is what it looks like when it has flesh and bones and muscle and blood throwing, flowing through its body. This is what faith looks like. Active, believing, trusting God is demonstrated for us in these characters. And at the top of that it is this man, Abraham, and his example for us. Or to us. The kind of faith Abraham had is what he means by uh, verses 8 and on through. Showing us what faith looks like. What faith looks like. Now I know it might be strange to sound. Uh, um, to say kind of faith. But we often use that terminology describing faith don't we. We say someone has weak faith or strong faith or great faith or no faith or true faith or false faith or or faith, faith, or whatever you want to call it. And all of that is trying to grab a hold of what does it mean to believe God? How is it manifested in one's life? And so that's what we want to do this morning as we walk through this passage of Scripture, is to see a description of the faith that the Holy Spirit intends for us to notice. Because we believe all Scripture is inspired and given to us by God and profitable for doctrine or proof and exhortation. And so he begins this as we look at that. And, you know, I was just thinking, 
And maybe you've never thought of that. Isn't it remarkable? Just the doctrine of justification by faith and the example of Abraham, that it is faith. And some of you may think in your own life, I don't know, maybe you've thought before, why faith? It just seems kind of an odd thing for God to require of us when it comes to receiving salvation. And I would just ask you, how would you rather it be? What would you rather require of you to be right before him? Your own good works? What you can give, what you can accomplish, what you can achieve? Because the Bible says in all of that, we, we have contaminated all of those things because we are turned away from God, we are sinful No, it is entrusting his good work to redeem us. It is faith because it is a gift of God. And so we are just encouraged by that. The first thing we notice about Abraham and and the declaration of faith or the kind of faith that he's wanting to stir in his audience and really stir in our hearts this morning is faith's obedience. Faith's obedience or an obedient faith, however you want to word that. He says, by faith, look at it with me in verse number 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed, there it is, obedience or obey, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, or any went out, not knowing where he was going. God called Abraham to leave his home, leave his family, uh, leave his culture and, and his security, the place he was familiar with, and called him to go out. He would make his name great. He would would give him blessings. He would uh, make a great people come from him. All of this was given to Abraham. All of it was promised to him. And Abraham left and went out. It is important to note that as you see this in verse number 8, there's no small thing to understand that Abraham's faith is a response to God's call, not the other way around. Now, Abraham's faith brought about God's call to, to get him to go out of the land. Abraham responded to the call of God to come out of his land. And the same thing is true with us. As God speaks to us, commands us, his word uh, instructs our life, the response to that is either belief or unbelief. In the example in front of us, it is seeing that Abraham left, responded with belief in God's call. communicate with your husband I when we were uh, talked to Ben about coming up here and I was telling Mary about this place after having talked to Ryan just a little bit and exchanged the email I told Mary about speculator so she gets on Google and she looks it up and she says do you know how much snow they get and uh, and I said no she says you want to know how much snow we get a year and she told me it's not a lot I don't know if she could tell you the numbers it was unbelievable, wasn't it? We knew where we were going, kind of, until we got here and we're like, no, this is, this is unbelievable. Look at the snow you guys get. Now, some of you guys are leaving here this week, and I know why. You know, I think one family, I'm not going to mention names, but they, they spent a winter up here, right? And <laughs> Anyway, but we knew where we were going. And so when you see these biblical figures and this faith that they display, don't miss the reality of the humanness of the family environment. You can see Abraham coming home after God appeared to him in whatever fashion he appeared to him and saying to his wife, Sarah, and saying, you know, I spoke with God today. God spoke to me. And she would say, which one? 
Well, he said he was the one true God. God of heaven and earth, creator of heaven and earth. And Well, that's good. What did he say? He said, just start packing. We're leaving. Oh, really? Well, where are we going, Abraham? That's the thing. I don't know. Just pack. He'll tell us while we're on the way. Some of you like to take vacation like that, but others of you get really nervous when you think about leaving a trip without having every detail planned out. But God doesn't lead us that way, does he? He doesn't give us the answer to every question we ask. And, and honestly, many of the questions we ask we'll never have the answer to. I think we'll forget the question when we see him face to face. You know, the things, when I see God, I'm going to ask him. I don't think he will. That's just my opinion. I think he's just going to be amazed I'm here. But nevertheless, Abraham believed God. He, he understood his faith was rooted, that he had heard from God, and he understood enough that God said, leave your family, leave your place, and come and follow me, and I'll tell you when we get there. And that's what you read in chapter number 12 that was read this morning. And when he got there, and after he built an altar, he says, this is the place I'm giving you. And so Abraham believed God, obeys the voice of God. You see that same thing in the New Testament. Have you ever thought about the boldness of Jesus as he walks among the disciples, Peter and, and, and Andrew and James and John, sitting there cleaning their nets and fixing them and mending them, and Jesus says, drop all that stuff, let somebody else have that, come and follow me. I mean, who talks to people that way? And yet he has all authority to do so because he is God, very God. And he says, come and follow me. What do you see in them? They drop their nets and they follow him. That same principle of, of God calling men and calling women and that obedience by following after. It's the very call of the gospel to, to leave your country, this, to, to leave the familiarity of everything you love, everything you hold on to, and to repent of your sins and embrace Christ and follow after him, which is completely a different direction than the way the world is going. The command of the gospel, the call of the gospel is to come and follow him. And, and the obedience of faith follows after, follows after. Here, Abraham's assurance wasn't having all the details. But his assurance was he had heard from God. And he had understood enough of what God said to do to obey. And he obeyed. Faith, trust, belief in God is a belief and a call to, to obedience of what God has said, what we have come to understand God has said. His word, his will begins to mark the believer's life. But not only do you see obedient faith or faith that is obedient, verse number nine, you see faith that has patience. Notice with me, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, which is the Canaan land or as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Now, what is he saying? He's saying that, that Jacob and Isaac were, were part of that promise. They lived in that same, not, not in the same tent with him, but he's saying they were part of that same promise in that same fashion, given that uh, the promise as it carries on the blessing of God. Now, think about what God has done here. Abraham... I'm giving you a land. But by the way, you're going to live as a stranger in it. And you won't possess it. None of it. The land you walk on won't be yours 
but will be generations down. Actually, in chapter number 15, we read 400 years of being enslaved or being captive in a foreign land before they come back and ever possess the dirt that I'm promising to you right now, Abraham. How frustrating that would be, right? Hey, can we be honest? You know why? Because we want now. We're so fixated on now that the generations to come hardly crosses our mind. And, and the blessing which is to carry on hardly crosses our mind. And yet here we see Noah, or Abraham living his life as a sojourner, as a wanderer in the land that God says, this all will be yours. This will all be yours. Come and walk the breadth of it, the width of it, and see all which I will give to you and your offspring. Abraham lived demonstrating his patience. He lived by faith as a stranger in the land and the word of promise, the word that God would give the land to him, the word and the promises that he gave was his comfort in the wandering years. 100 years he walked the land. He died at 175. That's pretty easy math. He started at 75. There you go. And for 100 years he lived with patience. He lived trusting, comforting himself in the promises of God. One Puritan commented on it, this saying, all of this is said to show that faith is content with God's word. It leaves God to the accomplishment of the promise and minds present obedience. He went out and that was a great trial, but what was his encouragement? The promise that he should receive it for an inheritance. And I know I've often said this in, in passing and other times Abraham was marked and you see that. Uh, even in our text here in verse number 9, he was living in tents. His life was marked, his dwelling was marked in a kind of moving fashion, transient fashion. He was always moving, never permanent. Uh, you, you camp out in a tent. You don't drive the stake so deep that you can't pull it up and move and go to some other place. It was, it was this is the way that Abraham lived. What you see him marked by is tents and, and altars. It wasn't cities that Abraham built. It wasn't great structures which, which marveled the inhabitants of Canaan. But it was altars. He would pitch his tent and build an altar. And it was his altar which was a demonstration of his faith in God which he left as a heritage to Isaac and that, to Jacob and Joseph and to you and I. It was his faith, was a declaration, his worship of God, his belief in God, which has been and continues to be an encouragement to us. What he left behind, what he built with his own hands was that which he declared with his own life day in, day out as a sojourner and a stranger in the land which was promised to him. And that is that he believed God, that he believed God. Do you remember how Peter refers to us? We are likewise called strangers and pilgrims. Sometimes we, re we resemble more strange than strangers. But even in our home, our homes here, uh, the places we, we hang our hat or hang our coat uh, or, or the places we grew up, all of that changes. All of that moves and, and, and is temporary. We see that in the life of Abraham. It reminds me of the old song which we used to sing. I don't know 
used to sing uh, in the South, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. How many of you ever heard that? Does that reflect your life? The way you think about this life? Abraham lived as a sojourner, as a stranger in a land that was promised to him, and yet he did not possess it, not fully, but he possessed the promise. He saw it afar off, the Bible tells us. He was content in God's promises that it would come to pass, that it would come to pass. Now, how did he do that? Well, verse number 10, he tells us. For he was looking forward to the city that has a foundation whose designer and builder is God. You know, the Bible tells us when the children of Israel are coming into Canaan land, he he promotes the land and the promise of, of fulfilling his promise to Abraham as, as being a land flowing with milk and honey. How many of you ever read that? In one place it says it's a good land, right? It's got cities and walls and houses and vineyards. You don't even have to plant. That's, that's pretty cool. And as good as it is, if Abraham possessed all of it, at that moment when God says it's yours, and if it was all of his possession, it would be far too little compared to what he was truly looking for. That's what the writer says. How could he live as strangers and pilgrims in this land? Because nothing in this land could satisfy, could, could equal up to the very thing that he was searching after. That is a city whose foundation or the foundation, speaking of, of, of the permanence of it, whose builder and maker is God. Not the city of men that changes from, from time to time, that, that is always moving, growing, decaying, falling apart, not something else coming up, no, nothing like that. He says he was looking for something that, that is not to be found in Canaan, not, not this kind of Canaan that's in this world. He was looking for that city whose builder is God. We see that description in Revelation chapter 21. You read through chapter 21 and 22 and it talks about the, that heavenly city coming down, that new Jerusalem and speaks about the city and the, the kind of place it is, the purity and the holiness and the joy and all that, that is to be had there. Abraham was looking beyond the 20, 30, 40, 100 years that he lived this life to something that would never fade. And you know what? That ought to be the very same thing we're doing. Because everything changes here. Not only was Abraham temporary in the world, but so is the cities that we build temporary in the world. But that should not discourage us. Because we are looking for something that lasts beyond our lifetime and the lifetimes of our children. We're looking for something which God has built himself. And you know, we are by means of new creation. That's what the Bible calls us, a new creation in Christ. Is if we've been born again by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we are by means of that new creation, by our salvation, by our eternal destiny set beyond the world in which we live to long for something that our eyes have just not yet seen. Something where our ethics and our values and, and the morals which, which look like God's values and ethics and morals have never been displayed in this side of heaven. Jesus reminds us of the uh, permanence of this promise when he tells us to store up our treasures in heaven where they will not decay. 
They will not be lost. And you know, we often say here we need to have an eternal perspective. That same perspective was shared by Abraham himself. He sojourned walking up and down the land he did not own with his eye on a land that was promised to him, which God has built. And we do that. That is our promise and our hope week after week, day after day. But notice, not only did you see faith's patience, but you see faith's confidence. Verse number 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as stars in the heaven, as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. We look at this uh, section as he brings not only Abraham to the forefront of this situation because she was with Abraham the whole time, wasn't she? Abraham and Sarah, neither one were perfect. In fact, when you see that God telling them next year you're going to have a a son, Sarah laughed. Then God said, why would you laugh? And Sarah said, I didn't laugh. And he said, no, you laughed and rebukes her. But he makes this statement in rebuking her when he says, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Church, how do you answer that? Believer, how do you answer that? How do you respond to a statement which God himself declared to Sarah? We don't know how it all worked out. We don't know at what way this this rebuke kind of worked into faith in Sarah's. I mean, after all, she's 90. Abraham's 100 years old. Having children at this point is beyond imagination. It's ridiculous to think of that. And yet God says, is there anything impossible with man? Is there anything too hard for him? How do you answer that? Well, the Bible tells us when Isaac was born, Sarah laughed again. Saying, because everyone else is going to laugh when they see a 90-year-old woman breastfeeding a child. Because God was faithful to his promise. That's what he says here. That's the secret. She considered him. She, she thought of him. She understood of him being faithful who had promised. Faithful who had promised. Her confidence and Abraham's confidence in the promises of God. And, and even in the promise of Isaac rested in God himself. Brings us back to the power of the Lord and of who he is. Moses, to Moses, he tells him, I formed your mouth when he says, I can't go because I stutter. And, and to Mary, the angel says, for nothing shall be impossible with God. Over and over, we're drawn to this, this, this God who does the impossible. You know, men and women still see God do mighty things for his glory today. Would you agree with that? To where the only explanation At the end, when it comes to how did this happen or or how was all of this done, the only way you can explain it is God. God, simply God. If it was not for God, uh, the psalmist said, who is on our side, then we would have perished long ago. And he goes through that long psalm telling us over and over, but God. The only explanation, and God still does that today. He started a nation from two people who were well past bearing children. Of course, he could do that because he created man out of dust. But they believed God. They believed God as Abraham knew his wife, to put it nicely in the King James language. 
as he knew his wife and they bore a son. God worked through the impossible. In times of overwhelming difficulty, does your faith lay hold of a God like that in which nothing is too hard for him? Who he is and what he can do. You remember back in verse number six, we must believe he is and he is a rewarder of them that seek him. There's much we can say about this, about Abraham and Sarah having a child, but it does speak to the reality that God is able to do far exceedingly beyond our limitations, beyond all of our expectations, beyond what anyone else can fathom. God is able to work and move and and do. And it doesn't mean that if we believe something and we want it bad enough, God is held captive and has to do it. As some have tried to twist the idea of faith but if you just have faith he is sovereign not our faith well that's a subject for a different time i think our problem is more in the sense on the other scale is in the midst of difficulty and we see it in our prayer life or our lack of prayer life we see it in our frustration we see it in our our hopelessness as we deal with life and wrestle with the difficulty things it isn't god can it says It is that cry from our heart, can God? Can God? Which the Bible is is clearly and boldly declaring, yes, God can. Yes, God can. I don't know what burdens you carry and I don't know what overwhelming things which you've tried to fix and it's just not fixed and and tried to deal with and, and you can't get it all lined out. People sometimes are like that. Family members are like that. You find hopelessness and, and you grapple with all of that. We, we're not just laying a hold of chance and maybe it'll work out. We're, we're being brought back to the reality of trusting in God who is able to do and go beyond our own limitations. In our way, we're children. And the strugglings between one another and the, the impossibilities of, of the stress that's going on in our life. And, and even ministry-wise, we want to live and serve God in a way that at the end of the day, the only explanation is God. All the glory goes to Him. He is able to do the impossible, isn't He? And I would just want to just encourage you theologically, and I, and I don't mean to get off of the subject here, but theologically, I, I, I want you to think about salvation in those terms. When you pray for the lost, that we share and we're faithful in witnessing and, and carrying out the gospel and preaching and, and praying and all the things that we can do. But at the end of the day, it takes God to change a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And God can do that over and over, no matter how hard of a sinner they are. The Apostle Paul sets himself as an example of that. And then he says, I'm the chief of them. You think you're bad? I, I tried to kill out and stomp out the name of Christ and his followers. And yet God's shown mercy to say, if he can save me, he can save the worst of you. God can do the impossible. God can do the impossible. Fourthly, I want you to notice, not only does faith walk with obedience, faith lives with patience, faith hopes, trusts in God who can do the impossible, 
he gives us a few lessons to take home with us, verses 12 through 15. He says, from one man and him as good as dead, speaking of Abraham, was born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Again, he's trying to bring out the reality that this church needed to be reminded of, and that is that you live this life as a stranger. It doesn't always feel comfortable. You don't always fit in. There is a home and you're not there yet. They live this way, but they did so anticipating the home to come. Verse 14, for people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. The nation of Israel brought out of slavery. Taskmasters, whips, building for the pharaohs, for the Egyptians, cruelty and all the other things that are going on and they're in the wilderness. And what is the thing that they long for? The lentils of Egypt. And in one place, the, the insurrection, the rebellion was so difficult that they were about to let's get rid of the Moses figure and let's raise someone up who will lead us back and let me just say that, that if that is our mindset there will always be people around in our life who will be willing to lead us back to where we came from and yet here we see that's not the example set before them that's not the example set before us. They were not thinking about the land they left, longing for what they left behind. They were thinking about what God has promised them. The promises of God were set in front of them, not to return, but to go forward, to possess, to have, to find the fullness of. Verse number 16, it says, but as it is, they desired a better country. That's a true thing in our Christian walk. God has not brought anything out of our life. He, he's not brought us out of, called us out of anything that is better than what we're going to, what he's promised us. Do you believe that? It's far better with God. It's far better now with God than what we left behind. Amen? And he's saying that, that, that even in this life, Jesus says you could gain the whole world if it's possible to do that. You could own it all. Right? Who's the richest guy now? Bezos? Whoever it is. You can own it all. And he says, what good is that? If that's all you got and you lose your soul. They were not looking for that which is here. They were looking for that which is to come. A heavenly one, verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call them, call them his own. We're not settled here in we're never settled here, not all the way. We have a family member uh, who owns a Mexican restaurant, Francisco. Really nice guy. I don't know if he knows half of what I say sometimes, but really uh, enjoy going to his restaurant. That's one thing I miss being up here. Just by the way, if you want to start one of those, go ahead. Murray will cook quesadilla for you or whatever that is. But he owns a home in Oaxaca, right? Is that? He owns a home in Oaxaca where our missionary, Chris Johnson, lives. 
It's a nice home. And, and I think the plan, at least I, I, I think I understand the plan is he's living here, he's married to Mary's aunt and all that stuff like that, but I think his plan is to go home to Oaxaca at some point. That's the reality with us, isn't it? We live here, we work here, we serve here, we, we do a lot here, but our desire, our plan, the, the end is that we're going to go home. We're pilgrims and strangers. We, we've got something far better than what this world has to offer. We sell, we buy, we invest, we build, we marry and have children. But all of that does not make this place home. Not really, not truly, not in the fullest sense which God has promised to us. We serve God here, invest in the kingdom of God, all with our eyes fixed on the promise of God and that heavenly city. And really in that pursuit of those things, in that service, in that work, that is how we see the promises of God. That is how we see them. And then I would be reminded of that and that you would be reminded of that this morning. Now let me just give you three things I think that may be helpful to you as we consider that this world is not our home. We're only passing through. One, it reminds us not to get too wrapped up in the temporary. Not to live in anxiety with the things that we can't control in, in, the, in the age and life we live in. And, and that is all temporary. Now, I'm not saying we're not to be involved and we're be, to be disengaged from, from life and social structure and all of that other stuff. But there is a place where that overwhelming possesses us to where it robs us of the sight that we are pilgrims and strangers. Not to get too wrapped up in this, into thinking that our hope is right here. But not only in, in the sense of being involved or what goes on around us, but, but even in our passions, in our sinful, uh, in, our, uh, in our temptation to pursue those sinful passions. It, it truly to be in Christ is to live with different customs, different ethics, different beliefs about the world, about yourself, about treating one another than the world has. You're a stranger as the system of the world goes. And, and, and it fights not only in the way the world operates and what, what they call good and bad, but, but how we fight that in our own flesh. Not to be wrapped up in the, in the base or filth or the, the rod of this world as we give in to temptation and we give ourselves away and spend ourselves in this life for momentary when God has called us to live according to his kingdom and according to his pleasure and his will. Because we are not of this home and we're strangers walking in a world that is set away from God. It reminds us not to get too wrapped up. Not only in the, in the life flow of things. But in its pull, its sensation of sin and its pleasure which it seeks after so much. But secondly, it reminds us not to get too overwhelmed in sorrow. In the middle of suffering, the church needs to be strengthened in their faith and their resolve. That's the very purpose of him writing this letter. That is not to minimize sorrow. That is not to minimize suffering and pain and hurt and heartache. And not to say that, that we do not 
feel overwhelmed with the weight of trials in which we face. We will feel that way. We do go through those things. It does hurt. It is heavy. And it may very well be that some of those afflictions and some of that pain will never leave us in this life. But it will leave us is what he's telling us. That's the point that he draws out. Not to become too overwhelmed with sorrow to think that there will not be a tomorrow without it. Because there will be if it is rooted in Christ. We may face it here for decades and and we may bear it heavy and it may hurt and it may be difficult but Paul brings us back in the midst of his own suffering to, to that lesson in which we're to learn that that sorrow which we experience in this life will not be worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us and, and what is, he's not minimizing the sorrow he's not minimizing suffering but what he's saying is not to be overtaken by it Because there is glory to be shared just as much as there's suffering to be shared for the Christian. Take courage, take strength, wait with endurance because one day the sun will rise. One day the sun will come back and there will be no setting of it. There will be no night. Not only does it remind us not to get too entangled with the world, too overwhelmed with its sorrows, but it reminds us to invest in the things that are lasting. Remember Jesus' words where he said, store up your treasures in heaven. Where We build a lot here at ABC, don't we? <laughs> we had our anniversary and that's all we have pictures of, people building, you know. And, and it is true if you join the church, we do ask if you can swing a hammer if you're a guy. And if not, then we put you through discipline and uh, <laughs> discipleship. That's not true. I didn't mean that. But you know, this, uh, this fall, I guess it was, where's Mark at? You can raise your hand. Everybody can see you. Marcus, um, there he is. I don't know if you guys know that, but we had siding on our building in the lodge. It was, what, 10 years that, that y'all finished that, right? You can nod and help me out with this. There was siding that was, that was rotten. I mean, it was rotting away, and, and we had to replace that to keep, you know, a shower from being inside the wall instead of, instead of where it ought to be. It decays. All of it decays. But you know, that's not true with the people that we've invested in. The lives touched by the gospel. Your own lives, which has been touched by the people you've engaged and the, and the efforts that you've given to the furtherance of the kingdom of God in whatever way that you have given that and spreading the gospel and missions around the world, the prayers you prayed and all the giving that has been done has been done with an eye towards eternity. Eternity. Storing up treasures in heaven. Investing in those things which matter. It helps us at times to correct our, our perspective and, and, and our outlook on life and our efforts at times. And it reminds us in the times in which we feel like we see no return or no reward that, that the reward is at the end. <laughs> When we get home. When we get home. Some of you go on vacation and, and travel and you buy a lot of stuff. And you think, how in the world we're going to get all this stuff back? We've got to travel on our airplane. That's the way it is when men go to uh, conferences, right, Pastor? When pastors go to conferences, we're thinking, how am I going to get all these books home? 
Luckily, most good conferences have a UPS right beside of them and say, go mail them. Or you throw away your dirty clothes and uh, your wife thanks you for that and the book's in there. Well, we don't have to worry about getting the stuff we do there. God is the rewarder of those things. He is the one keeping the record. You see, a faith in God is not only a faith which is obedient to the word and will of God, a faith patiently waiting on God, a faith that is confident in God. But all of this is done, I guess, to say this as we close, because Christ. Not because faith is disconnected from from its source. They believed and they did all these things, but who did they believe? They believed God. Who is God, the Bible tells us? It's nothing less than Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, who died a substitutionary atonement, who rose again the third day, and the Bible says will one day come again. They believed in God. And Jesus' entrance into the world is saying, here is God. This is the vision. This is who you trust and who you believe in. And once you read the first part of Hebrews, all that he's done for us in making preparations, the writer is simply saying, keep believing. Keep waiting. Because as Sarah teaches us, he is faithful who has promised. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your blessing to us. Thank you for your word. Lord, I don't... I would, and it is my desire that you would just strengthen us, encourage us, not only to marvel at, at the faith of these Old Testament saints, but to marvel at the God in which they trusted. I think that's the goal. It's what he leads us to in chapter number 12 when he says to fix our eyes on him. And so we just pray that you would help us to do that. In Christ's name, amen.